0: G'day, welcome to Say It With Guitars. I'm your host, Pete Cornelius. Each episode, I'll be digging deep and getting to hang with some of Australia's finest guitar pickers, songwriters, producers, collectors and makers. I look forward to bringing you these fun conversations and I hope you enjoy Say It With Guitars. Hello out there listeners. Thanks for joining us for yet another thrilling episode of Say It With Guitars. Hope you enjoyed the last podcast with the Luca Brasi boys too. Um, Today's chat with Lucky, Uh, the audio does get a little bit funky here and there, so please bear with us. This was one of our early shows and, yeah, we just seem to be up against it. And we do get a bit nerdy. It is a pretty techy instrument, the pedal steel, so we do get into the depths of the steel and its history. Uh, I found it really interesting, and hopefully you do too. Before we crack into today's show, I'd like to shout out to our sponsor, Mr. Billy Tarrant from Tarrant Guitars. Billy's an amazing luthier, and he makes some real sweet instruments. I'm lucky enough for him to have built me a double-o size acoustic guitar, which I've dragged all around the country, and it's sounding better than ever. So yeah, check out tarrantguitars.net.au, Tessie's one-stop custom workshop for custom made guitars, all guitar repairs and services. Let's get into the show. Let's welcome to today's show, Mr. Lucky Oceans. Lucky, how are you going? I'm good. So great to be here with you, Pete. Yeah, man. Thank you very much for joining us. We attempted this last week, but technology just wasn't on our side. But I think we've got it sorted thanks for your persistence, too lucky
1: yeah 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 uh we'll see we'll see how it goes i i <laughs> I've got you on the other end, so uh so i'm pretty I'm pretty optimistic that we'll get through Excellent.
0: this we'll get through this. We're just having a laugh because um yeah. lucky thought it was a video podcast, but um it's purely <laughs> audio you're looking good there luck
1: yeah oh thanks yeah thanks pete we We
0: all know <laughs> that. <laughs> So tell me, what have what you been up to? What, what's keeping you busy at the moment musically? What have you been up to?
1: Uh, well, I, I work with a, a bunch of songwriters and musicians in the town of Roburn, which is a mostly Aboriginal town in WH Pilbara, and we've been making an album. So I'm producing that. So that's, that's kind of the main thing, lots of studio time with that. Uh, At the weekend, playing a couple shows at the Ellington, which is a a great jazz club in Perth. Uh, One with a a really good singer named Alira Wilson and really good guitarist named Freddie Grigson. Basically jazz people, but mixing it up, you know, playing a bit of Dolly Parton. And then I played with a great, great gypsy jazz group on Sunday called Sassafras. And that really pushes me to the edge of edge of my abilities we mix (laughs) gypsy swing and western swing
0: fantastic
1: which is which is an interesting concept you know i came to australia as a, a western swing specialist steel player and occasionally i'll put a western swing band together but there's just not much of a market for it it's it's a specialized thing in the u.s it's a regional music there that really didn't get Uh, east of the Mississippi too much. Uh, So what I've done in the past is I'll play some country gigs and I'll play some jazz gigs, which are the two main elements of Western Swing. I just split them up, but it's it's nice with this uh, gypsy jazz group, Sassafras, to to be able to do some Western Swing with Django-style guitars. How how do you approach that um, musically? Do
0: you have to think of it um, as a different sort of scale family, or do you just sort of bump the tempo up about 50 BPM and just go crazy?
1: Oh, my God. Some of those tempos are just insane. <laughs> the, these are young guys who, who play really fast. Uh, one of them, actually, uh, Lachlan Gear, who played one of the guitarists, he got inspired to play Gypsy Jazz from hearing something on the Daily Planet the old oh, radio show that yeah. that I presented with, which is great. I meet these people all the time, but yeah, the Western swing and gypsy swing are similar. You know, they share uh, a lot of the standards, you know, the the old jazz standards of the twenties and thirties, like, like right or wrong or, uh, I'll see you in my dreams. Those are played by both Western Swing and Gypsy Jazz musicians, uh, cool. which is interesting because they're two. You know, Gypsy Swing is a French Gypsy interpretation of jazz. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, uh, Gypsy Swing is, and Western Swing is like a you know a Texas fiddler interpretation of jazz. But yeah, Pete, like, doing lots of stuff. Uh, you know, always always writing some songs. I've been. Uh, experimenting with pedals you know COVID has COVID has has you know it when it first started in in 2020 and there was no gigs around I I I took up harmonica again I played harmonica when I was a teenager so I started doing that started playing a bit of piano and then recently I went well why don't I like experiment putting uh pedals on the pedal steel. So you know, I got like a strong and big sky standard thing because you know, steel is so much about reverb. I thought, well, you might yeah. as well have the best reverb there is. Yeah. But I'll show you I'll show you my latest plaything. All, All right. Right. Uh, let's hear it. I, there's a thing in uh, in uh in Western swing guitars where they go boo wah boo wow. Uh, you know, it, and I'll show you the sound of it just by doing this. <laughs> this is more accurate. Yeah. Very exciting. So, uh, the way they used to get that was by having a little push button on their steel guitar that would, when you pushed it, it would eliminate all the treble tones. So it's Uh, like this. What I did was I got a little mini mini wah volume pedal, and I've mounted it uh, like on a shelf coming off the back leg of my pedal (laughs) steel so I can work it with my elbow. So spring kind of thing, or a lackey band around it. so it reverts to uh, off position, full bass position. So I've, uh, my elbow is pressing down on it. Wow. 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 So yes, yeah, so, so that's that's sort of my latest thing. I know when we did a gig together in Fremantle, I had uh, I had this new organ pedal. So, yeah, that's so, right, like a Leslie effect. So I was having fun with that. I mean, I'm not much of a pedal guy. Uh, pedal steel players are not really so much pedal people as a rule with guitarists. It's almost like part of your rig, your <laughs> amp, your guitar, and your pedals. Yeah. So I've had to kind of force myself into that area. But, but uh, it's been really interesting because with, with pedal steel guitar, I just feel like uh, there could be a lot more experimentation uh, with, with the sounds and techniques of it.
0: I, yeah, it is a very traditional instrument in that way. It's it's generally just reverb, and maybe some delay for a bit of texture, perhaps. And you've got your swell pedal, like you your expression pedal, under the
1: yeah, the board yeah, on my right foot. So that's all. That's an essential part. And you hear yeah. that when you know, on your country, like so. I'm pressing that down slowly, so so a note sustains, you know, for a long time. But yeah, the steel, when I took up steel and shortly before, like in the early 70s and late 60s, the pedal steel guitar was a a very new instrument. And it was a very exciting time because uh, new ways of building them and new ways of playing them were being worked out. Um, So, shall I run you through a, a, a kind of potted history of of the steel guitar and pedal steel guitar
0: yeah i'd I'd love to hear a bit more about the history of the steel i'm pretty sure that um well i don't know i I don't want to presume most of the listeners you know don't know anything about it but it's always yeah coming from a master like yourself it's always good to hear a bit of its background for sure hit me
1: okay well it's uh you know and the early part of the 20th century hawaiian music was was a craze it was um, very popular like the tango was popular like mandolin music was popular and uh, that happened when some hawaiians came over and played some exposition i think in chicago and uh that was a sound you know the sound like... <laughs> uh, but it wasn't electric so they they played uh all, you know, acoustic instruments, like a guitar played in your lap with the uh, strings raised. So you would play it with a knife or a bar and get, you know, all the sliding effects. And... Uh, Pete can see it while while we talk, but you <laughs> listeners can't see it. I'm actually bending the bar as I go up because playing steel guitar is like playing guitar with one finger. It's pretty limited. so uh, if i if I'm tuned to an open chord and and I go up uh, five frets. Just like A, D, E, A. But if I go up and bend the bar, I can get another position of A, you know, by bending the bar forward or backwards. Yep. So people worked on that. There were some great Hawaiian players, Saul Hopai, who crossed over into jazz because it was becoming the jazz era. And then uh, people started investigating almost at the same time, resonators and electrifying instruments. So the idea of a resonator was they had the technology to spin an aluminum cone thin enough so it could act like a speaker. So the Dopera brothers started putting those uh, in in their instruments, which they ended up calling Dobros, and uh, George Beecham with a company called National put them in his instruments, which were called Nationals. And those would make uh, the guitars louder. Now, they could be set up with a round neck like a guitar or with a square neck like a, a lap guitar. But in the late 20s, they also started working on electrifying instruments. And the first electric guitar was the steel guitar. I've, I've got yeah. one. I've got. An old Rickenbacker, which is made of Bakelite. Yes. You know, it's like, yeah, so horseshoe heavy. Magnets. And it's a horseshoe magnet pickup. Yeah, yeah. one of my favorite, favorite oh, yeah. instruments. And uh, so those developed, and, you know, and Western swing started coming out. So in addition to Hawaiian music, you started to have uh, these electrified steel guitars on Western swing and country music. And the players who were playing them, they went, well, this is like playing guitar with one finger. So the the early tunings were G tuning or A tuning, which is just uh, A tuning would be A, C sharp, E, A, C sharp, E. Very, very limited, very sonorous, but limited. And an E tuning, uh, which was uh, similar to what you'd use in Open D or E on a guitar but they started going well I can't get I can only get major chords so they might put a 7th into the tuning or put a 7th and a 6th make a E 13th that would sound like this Uh, get a bit of a jazzy sound and you could get that from, from a guitar that had been retuned you know you could and players would have uh you know tuning charts where they tune retune their guitars through the gig or or yeah right there were methods that they started putting more than six strings on these electric guitars uh they put you know seven eight they got up to ten with a particular model and then someone i think it was leon mcauliffe who played with Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, he thought, oh, well, why don't we have multiple necks? So he eventually (laughs) got the pedal steel up to four necks, you know, each had a slightly different tuning. So you would switch between the necks while you were playing to get different chords. Uh, Now, another development that happened was uh, people started making these pedals on the floor that would stretch the strings uh, and raise them in pitch. I'm going to demonstrate that right now. Press the pedal. So I press the pedal, and it goes up in pitch. So they would play these guitars. One was called a Gibson E-harp. And when they wanted to play a song, say, in e 13th, they would press the combination of pedals that would give them that. So
0: I was going to ask, wasn't some of those early Gibson like console steels or whatever they were called, didn't they have mechanical switchings as well for different tunings?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes there was all different methods tried. Yeah. You could, yeah, flip a switch and change permanently to another tuning. The idea was that you wouldn't change tuning in the middle of a song, right? Yeah. So it went on like that for a while. Players reached, you know, a very high standard of playing people like Buddy Emmons and Curly Chalker started out on on lap steel. So there's a there's a lot of bar movement when you've got no pedals activated. And then uh, a a song came out by uh, Webb Pierce called Slowly. And a, a player named Bud Isaac started that, that song by pressing down on a pedal and raising the string. So he went sure. like this. So. Press pedal. Unpress pedal. him another fret. Press pedal. And that everyone heard that, and they just went, oh, my God, I've got to get that sound. Yeah. So, so all these people would go, you know, they'd take their lap steels, and they'd use bicycle parts, and they'd rig pedals up to them. <laughs> yeah. and, and everyone had these things going. Uh, and, uh, and then Paul Bigsby on the West Coast, who was like a, a great engineer and inventor, he he made uh, some of the first console pedal steels because they were making these multi-neck pedal steels. And he made ones uh, with pedals that would change the tuning. And that just kept developing, uh, you know, a com- company called Showbud uh opened up in Nashville. Uh, now there are probably, you know, 50 makers ar- around the world. And, and, um, uh, it kind of centered around two tunings. When you have a double deck pedal steel guitar, you probably have an E9th on the top neck and a C6 on the bottom neck. Now, an E9th, e even, even if it stems from that, that E13th tuning, it's what became the country sound. Yes. And it's what you hear in you know 99% of steel guitar recordings. So, you know, you had that Bud Isaacs thing. But then you go. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing pedals off and on all the time. That's a pedal. That's a pedal. That's a pedal. Yeah. So I'm able to bend bend one note and keep other notes stationary.
0: Such a great but, invention uh, to to think that that became out of a necessity because people probably couldn't get those minor chords or get to shapes and sounds without moving the bar dramatically and then affecting the intonation of the other strings that are around it. Um, and how about the knee levers? Because that is another part, like a, another component of the steel that sort of often gets ignored because it's, it's also like to me, I think that's as vital as the pedals, right, because they flatten the strings or they go both ways.
1: They do, any, any pedal or knee lever does whatever you want with it. Ah, uh, right. Pedal steel it is a highly individualized instrument. Uh, there's a great story about um, Fender was putting out a new model, Fender made pedal steels as well, uh, but only, only sporadically. And they had, they had a great builder named Gene Fields collaborate them with them on this model, I think it's called the PS-1000. And it was advertised, full page ads on the back of guitar player. Pedal steel was fairly big, country rock was big in the early 70s. And then uh, Fender got bought out by CBS. And CBS said, so we're making an instrument that each one is a custom model with the player's own tuning, right? And you're gonna sell that for, you know, $2,000. Sorry, we'll concentrate on the Fender Rhodes piano. I'm talking about, you know, how I'm raising the strings with pedals. And it is true, all my E9 pedals do nothing but raise the strings. But but I have a lever on E9 that lowers a string. So so the bridge is a floating bridge. And underneath, you know, the, the behind the apron of a pedal steel are all these rods that are activated by the pedals. You know, you go through a 90 degree angle, and then it it either, you know, pulls a f- a finger, which is what is, you know, one string's part of a bridge is called a finger, and they're all mounted on a cylinder and and move independently so depending on where you put that rod through the finger it will either raise or lower it and then you can tune it uh whether it raises it or lowers it a semitone a tone you know up to a tone and a half really
0: wow yeah right
1: yeah so i've got i've got this one on my on my c6 that goes raises it raises uh you know, tone and a half so uh so yeah the knee levers they were being just being invented when i started playing pedal steel so you you know you got one that raised the E's to f and one that lowered uh your second string the interesting thing about pedal steel is that uh the str- I'll play the strings from lowest to highest in position. They go down. The, hi- <laughs> the highest string in pitch is the third string, because it's like it's like playing a guitar with one finger. So they made it so you can get a major scale from one fret. I'm doing this with, um, with no bar. So, yeah. So, uh, that was all happening, you know, when I was a beginning player and, uh, And I'll go briefly into the C6 neck, which is. Which started from the C6 tuning, which was uh, popularized by a great player named Jerry Bird. Uh, He started playing that in the late 30s. And you hear Jerry Bird on some of Hank Williams recordings. So if I play without pedals. It's a distinctive sound. Yeah, it's beautiful. It puts you right right back into that Hank Williams time. Yeah. But what they did was they added low strength, low, low strength. So you can go. I'm using a lot of pedals. Two pedals together make a diminished chord, you know, and, and one of, the, one of the beautiful things about how the pedals are laid out on C6 is there's a lot of contrary motion. So I go. Just tune B- bottom string raises. Top string lowers. This is all on one pedal. Sure. Right? So yeah. I go from like a C chord to, to a D seventh chord. Uh, or I go from C seventh to an F seventh. So you asked me what I was doing. One of my sort of uh, obsessions at the moment is counterpoint on steel. And by counterpoint, I mean contrary motion. It's something that you can do a little bit easier on steel than, than uh, say, guitar. So I go. One note going up, the other note going down. Or. Yeah. So, it's yeah, fun. that's the way I, ca- I kind of approach steel is I get, I get on a, an obsession. I mean, the contrary motion thing has been going for many years. <laughs> uh, and uh, unfortunately, I'm kind of under-recorded. <laughs> so I don't record that much. So, so this stuff doesn't get out. But I hope to, to start putting this out at least you know, on an online channel. I'm kind of an open string nut as well. I like to learn all my scales um, by hammering the bar on. Hammering on the bar is a thing that's done more in bluegrass dobro, which is a resonator instrument tuned to GBD, GBD. But I like to go on steel.
0: I guess it's a faster approach too, right? You can get to the notes cleaner and more efficiently.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. Because on steel, uh, you know, once again, that one finger limitation, but uh, you don't quite have the thing on guitar where you can lift your left hand and mute a note. That doesn't quite... Gives a very choppy sound on steel if you do that. So yep. the muting the note beca- is one of the hardest things because it's a beautiful legato instrument naturally. So you do uh, this technique. And I did this when I broke my left hand when the sleep at the wheel was starting off <laughs> in West Virginia. So I worked on my right hand. And it's, you're essentially bouncing. You can hear my my hand bouncing against the muted strings there. So, yeah. so I'm bouncing up and down. So yeah, this really rapid motion up and down of the right hand, or you can cheat a little. Just put light pressure on all the time, but don't bounce. Yep. Or you can do something called pick blocking, where, where I'm afraid I'm getting too technical. Just stop me. <laughs> oh, no, is so, so the thumb picks a note. And then as your finger picks the next note, the thumb rests on the first note. Yep. A more legato style, less, less uh, staccato. Style than than the jumping up and down, muting method.
0: That's great. Um, And I guess a lot of those techniques would have come from from banjo-style instruments too, right, with the finger picks and sort of doing that fast legato style. Yeah,
1: I don't know. It's a really good question. When did finger picks, you know, start and on what instruments? Yeah. You know, because I know, you know, banjo went from being a kind of claw hammer thing to being... You know the bluegrass, uh, two finger picks and a thumb instrument. Um,
0: I wonder if that yeah and, came and, out of like necessity for for playing for like longer hours or maybe for longer um, for louder style concerts. Because you know, absolutely, with just flesh yeah. on a string, you've only got you know, <laughs> so long until your finger falls apart.
1: That's right. No, no, they are. You know, I will take my picks off every once in a while. I, I was, like many of us, I'm an admirer of Derek Trucks playing. Yes. Uh, so you can kind of get that, that, that beautiful, exciting vibrato. But then I went, what if I take my picks off? Yeah. So it's it's good because it also, it reduces your facility. So it causes you to, uh, you know, express a bit more.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. And how do you go with your, with your left hand? I know that when I play steel for any length of time, my, my muscles in my left hand from holding that heavy bar get quite... Um, get quite sick of it they, they sort of give out on me how, how do you okay. I, I guess it's like a muscle that you just strengthen up and over time it just becomes part of your normal yeah
1: I mean fingers crossed I, I don't think of it you're not really holding the bar your gravity is pressing it down you know sure and you're so you're just trying to relax everything you know your right hand your left hand and uh, you know your fingers behind the bar on the non-playing side of the bar are there to mute the strings behind because if they're not there for instance that's not there you just eliminate the harmonics behind the bar and create a, a nicer sound yeah it's uh, it, i can't say that I, that I, that I've ever gotten tired from it they are big heavy bars
0: yeah <laughs> maybe i just wasn't relaxed enough Maybe I was just yeah. thinking too much about yeah. it. Yeah, and,
1: you know, just a little bit of a roll for a vibrato. Some people yep. say you should roll the bar for a vibrato. Other people actually shake it back and forth. Sure. I mean, it's it's one of the most vocal instruments. It's just amazing the way it goes. Uh, and... and uh, You know, when I look back on the first steal I heard, because I'm not, you know, I was raised in a suburb of Philadelphia. Even though there was country music there, it wasn't the prime thing I was listening to. My parents listened to jazz. Sure. Uh, So I used to go to this little coffee house called The Second Fret in in Philadelphia. And uh, Charlie Musselwhite was playing there. And he had this guy this brown-skinned man named Freddie Roulette sitting down and playing a lap steel. And his sound was, I'm gonna put my wah pedal on to knock the treble off. He sort of sounded like this. (laughs) Sort of that E13 sound. But very very loose in his intonation conception. <laughs> yeah. So when when I was young, I just loved the the country blues players, Sunhouse and Mississippi John, heard Skip James. I, I saw them all like in Hopkins. Right. So it was odd that after having you know uh, my parents listened to jazz and all the rock I listened to and the blues that I would start playing country music. But that was the Sleep of the Wheels thing. We were in the country music and Western Swing. So it wasn't until the 90s when a, uh, a guitarist named Steve James sent me this tape called uh, Sacred Steel. And it was about the, the African American players who, who had a, a bunch of churches that featured this, the electric steel guitar in their music. Sure. So, and it was like, that was the king of the instruments, you know? That was like how people got to ecstatic experiences by, by riding the waves of, of, the, of the steel guitar. And that's, a lot of people would know Robert Randolph. That's the tradition he comes from. Yeah. So my wife and I went up to see Chuck Campbell of the Campbell Brothers. He lived in Rochester. And, and Chuck and I, we just like set up in his basement he, he, at the time, was working for the Rochester um, Gas Company. So he was on call all night. So he'd set up in his basement, and he, he, had a, he had like a white man's pedal steel, you know, tuned up to the country way. Yep. And then, and then had, you know, his own tuning. And then he would get a call and go check a gas leak and come back, and we played, and we played all night. And uh, we've played a couple gigs since then. We played at the great club, Iridium, uh, in New York. And it's just, it was just a revelation because uh, it's just so different the way they approach it, you know, same tuning. But uh, I, was, I was listening to someone talk about it uh, just the other day. Uh, it's still a living tradition. And he said, first, we learn one string.
0: Hey, I'm just going to interrupt here for a brief moment, folks. Uh, we have stumbled across some more audio issues. Uh, Lucky Steel sort of cut out a little. So we're going to jump in hopefully where we left off with some slightly cleaner audio. All right, here we go. So you, you're saying how, how the Sacred Steel guys would go up on one string, more like an Indian style.
1: Yeah. And, and they would do that really vocal and and they were using all these pedals. I said pedal steel players didn't use pedals. Well, they're using wah, you know, wah is a main thing. The Morley wah pedal is like their mainstay and, and distortion. And Chuck would have like a fractal right in the beginning. And he had a feedback creator. I used to go and buy whatever <laughs> pedals Chuck had, you know. So uh, chasing down all those expressive options and also, you know, lots of strumming. So I've I've got some pedals, you know, because pedal steel because of that one finger thing, the voicings of the strings are quite close. Some strings are only a tone apart. Those three strings are just a tone apart I'm playing them open. So the sacred steelers have a way of getting rid of those non-chordal tones, you know, with levers, right. so right. they can just strum. So, I've, yeah, I've got a pedal on my C6 that takes that six sound out, just turns it into like a chorusy kind of mm-hmm. triad. Because they, they don't have guitar in sacred, steel, in sacred Steel bands. It's just bass, drums, and steel, basically.
0: So would that be emulating someone, say, playing a, a chord on an electric guitar, sort of strumming away? Is that the point of that, yeah, I think? it is. Yeah,
1: yeah it is. Yeah, sometimes there will be a guitar in the band, actually. I lie. But, uh, I mean, the steel is just the king of instruments. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, you know, so I try to integrate that into my playing and, of course, I, I'm always studying jazz. You know, there's once again a post-COVID thing. There's so much on YouTube, and there, there's a great channel called Things I Learned from Barry Harris. Barry Harris is a, a jazz, like a bebop educator.
0: Oh wow! And he okay.
1: one of one, one of his theories is um, the bebop scale is. actually eight notes. Let's go. One. one, two, three, four, five, sharp five. five. Yeah, uh, And and that really works if you if you divide, you have to go see things I learned from Barry Harris. <laughs> but uh, you, you, can div- you can make that scale from a succession of say C six and D diminished chords like this. It's a real '50s kind of pianistic style, so uh, and scalar things because you know I play jazz, but I've never been to school. I I came up, you know, uh, you know, like a lot of musicians, just copying licks. When I first started out, uh, I just had an Enon pedal steel and a C6 lap steel, and I was copying these things Buddy Emmons was doing on his C6 steel with pedals, but I had uh, next to no musical knowledge. You know, he had great sure. musical knowledge, so I was just kind of parroting them. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I put the pieces together as, as I get older. So
0: with, with the licks on the steel, are you coming, So you just mentioned then you don't, didn't have much theory back when you first started. Has, have you sort of taken more of a theory approach to the steel say recent more so recently or is it still kind of based on ear and melody and and patterns and things like that
1: well, i think it it's a combination of the two you know with playing music uh it's it's a tricky tricky path you walk because um, uh, i always like to learn new things new techniques new patterns new theories but i don't particularly want to just uh play those by rote on a gig because i'm supposed to be improvising yeah so you you know like the famous miles davis quote is like you know why are you guys practicing you know it's like you should (laughs) you know you should be playing you know melodies and be in the flow of things I, I did a YouTube talk about that. If people want to check it out on improvisation, okay. So, um, so, I mean, I love to practice. I love to expand my technique, but in the end, it should all serve uh, your ability to do new things when you're when you're in the flow, and and that just takes a lot of trust as well. That that you know you're gonna do this crazy thing. I mean I made up <laughs> I made up like a document of all different extended techniques. So you know so you know playing is a very broad church. You know, you have all these jazz theoretical things and how sacred steel players play and how country players play and then you have like extended techniques like I can I can drag the bar on the strings like Uh, And I do a lot of behind the bar on steel. You know, if you play behind the bar on the non-pickup side of the bar, you and keep your fingers off the strings on your left hand. You get a sort of chorusy effect because you've divided you've divided the strings up into almost equal portions. And then if I that's on the twelfth fret now, dividing them. If I if I divide into thirds my notes Go up a third, so it's uh, beautiful. Yeah, it's just something that hasn't been explored much. I mean, it, I did a free improv gig uh, last year where I put a pickup on the wrong side of the guitar, so you picked up all those.
0: All right,
1: all those tones. So I, you know, I'm interested in prepared guitar.
0: Actually, one thing I wanted and, to you know, ask Jeff Lang when he was on the show was because he recently had a lap steel built for him from a guy – actually, I think yeah. out in Western Australia,
1: I think. Yeah, it's my friend Ross Cool. I, I was just yeah. talking to him this morning.
0: Yeah. yeah, right. So he just built Jeff an instrument that has um, a set of sympathetic strings in – so it's like a Weisenborn-style arrangement. So it's a lap steel, but under – like inside the neck, there is a set of sympathetic strings with a pickup
1: as well. Yeah. With like a secondary output. And a capo. And, and a, a capo. capo. So yeah. he has – he has capos on both necks. So, yeah. so in other words, if he's tuned to open E on, on his playing neck, and he can capo up to G and he puts the capo up to G on the sympathetic neck.
0: Yeah. I think it's such a wild, um, I don't know, is, is that something that has been done before? I'm sure it probably has been experimented. Well, with,
1: Indian but... music, Indian music is all about the sympathetic strings. Sure.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I remember I did, a, I did a gig with Vishwa Mohan Bhatt, and, like, he, <laughs> uh, really, I mean, the training you get in Indian classical music is, is just insane. You know, you practice eight hours a day from whatever age you start. So, so I was outclassed in a way. But uh, also the sound of the instrument. So, so they tune to a mode. Uh, so they tune all these sympathetic strings up to about 20 sympathetic strings to, to the chord that they're playing in. And that just rings out and it gives it such a rich sound, Uh, something that, that we try to recreate with uh, reverb or something, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's a poor uh, equivalent, but uh, yeah, so that's, that's, where jeff is coming from because i know yeah. jeff is into in indian music as well and it's a subtle thing but uh but it's a great thing now i i i have a little bit of that because uh when i had this pedal steel made not only did i have like this whole new tuning that I, that i'm still learning and experimenting with but um uh, i said uh make make the necks in stereo. So you have a pickup on both neck, right? And the normal thing to do in pedal steel is to mute one neck and play the other. So with this, I can get quite a good sound. I keep both necks open all the time because I switch between them quite a bit. So I play that. I play an E chord on my C6 neck. And that is going to excite some notes on my e9th neck. So yeah. I'm going to turn it so so my it's only my e ninth neck on. But I'm going to play my C6 neck, right? Oh,
0: uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like a reverb.
1: Yeah. So I have even done some tracks. Uh, I did uh, some recording for Bunalari, where basically I just sent them the neck that wasn't on. <laughs> and, you know, so you're just getting these these resonances. Yep. Oh, That's wild. So I like to experiment. I mean, I've got this, this weird pedal called a, a particle V2 that does, you know. I mean the backwards thing is pretty standard, but it does a lot of other freaky stuff. I just have to figure out where to put it besides my late night <laughs> practice sessions, where, where does it fit musically? But but I do I do have some ideas about that.
0: Um, and speaking of, of performing and, and playing in a live environment, tell me about tell me about your work with Asleep at the Wheel. Like how did did you guys all grow up together? Were you all inspired to play that music together or was there like a ringleader? And tell a little bit about that group.
1: It was pretty dynamic. I mean, Ray Benson, who still leads the band after more than 50 years, he and I have known each other since we're about four years old. So we were buddies when we were growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia. And he, you know, he he was in a folk band. We sort of both did the folk thing together he studied a bit of jazz. I got into blues. We split off. And then, uh, we met, uh, this other guy named Leroy Preston, who was a farm boy from Vermont. And Leroy was really into, uh, country music. So, so when, when the band moved to West Virginia, uh, you know, through a combination of circumstances, when we moved there to start a band actually, cause we were in a band when we moved there, uh, we played a lot of country music, so so that's sort of where that went. But Leroy was an excellent songwriter, so we would play his country songs, and you know it was a a dynamic, ever changing landscape. Where when we moved out to California, uh, we uh, got uh, Tony Garnier on double bass. He's now Bob Dylan's bassist for many years and Floyd Domino on piano and Floyd was like a jazz player. So, uh, and Chris O'Connell, great singer was interested in, you know, both country music and soul music. So yeah, it was, it was a dynamic evolution. And then we heard Western swing. We heard Merle Haggard's uh, tribute to Bob Wills yeah, the King of Western Swing album, and we were just so inspired by that. We just said, "Well, we can play country music, but we can play it with the jazz influences, you know, that that we grew up on." Sure. Uh, and that's that's what Western Swing is. So we so were doing that
0: infectious sound.
1: So yeah, it's it's, it's great. It's it yeah. dance music. Yeah. And you know, we did that. We moved out to California on the invitation of Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen, who were really Ray's inspiration to start the band. They were a tremendously exciting group of young guys, mainly from the University of Michigan, who who played this mix of rockabilly and country music and... And had a kind of apocalyptic, chaotic stage <laughs> show. You know, about eight people in the band. They were just, and they they had like a hit on a a cover of Hot Rod Lincoln. Yes. So they were kind of a bit a big deal. There's there's been a book written about them called Star Making Machinery about the failed attempt to uh, to get another hit from them. You know, there was like yeah. a one one hit wonder. And I can talk a little about that uh, in a while, but so they invited us out to California and uh, you know, we hung out with a lot of people out there. There was a band called Clover. Uh, there was a kind of circuit of of clubs around the Bay area, Oakland, San Francisco, Marin County, San Jose. And we played country places and we played the rock places a band called clover ended up doing uh elvis costello's first album they were the band for that right. and their singer you lewis went on to have a solo career and their multi-instrumentalist uh john mcphee is now with the doobie brothers mm-hmm. uh, and van morrison was out there at the time we we shared our country music records with him and then Uh, We started touring with Willie Nelson, and Willie said, what are you guys doing out here in San Francisco? You should be in Texas. You know, we already had a record deal. We did moderately well with our first album. Uh, He said, and we were touring. We bought a bus. He said, so we we checked out Texas, and we went, wow, it's really true. They got these old dance halls here where people still dance to Western Swing, and they still do it. They're still doing it 51 years later. So this is what I'm saying about Western Swing being such a regional yes. style. Yeah. You know, it is, you know. But, you know, there's enough of a market for it uh worldwide where, you know, at least one band can make a living out of it, and that's, you know, Sleep at the Wheel. There may be other ones uh, like Hot Club or Cowtown, like smaller bands. Sure. And But part of that is due to my boyhood friend, uh, Ray's genius at uh, marketing and business. You know, we, we used to always make fun of him, we actually gave him a a mock name called bismo (laughs) b i s m e a u x, like a Cajun name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Because he was always doing the business and he and he proudly adopted it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's like a sleeve of the wheel. From the time we moved to Texas, we always had an office. We had, you know, a manager, secretary, staff. Wow. Uh, yeah. So just always just do it professionally. You know, booking agent. Wow. Ray was always schmoozing. You know, we'd be at these functions, record company functions. And all of us musicians would be. You know, eating the free food, and he'd be, you know, going <laughs> to the most powerful person in the room and, and charming, charming them. You know, yeah. You know, the rest of us, we just, you know, kept working on our musical skills and hanging out. And he was just, you know, he's always been all about the business. His son has taken over the management of the band now. Yeah, cool. So, and you guys that, are just put out a record out. That's the lesson
0: there, right? You to, uh, yeah, we put a new record here? out.
1: We were Yeah, well, you know, I was I fl- flew to Texas in March of 2020 to make the album and that was like when COVID was just happening. Oh yeah. I I ended up like escaping back to Perth and they started recording the album, but Ray got COVID and then we restarted it last year like around may so i did all my parts from here my first awesome. vocal on the sleep of the wheel album on a song i wrote so i'm really nice. happy about that and nice. and then they toured it in october this is like a reunion of the original band ray leroy chris and i and uh i wasn't able to get over because i just didn't know it's hard yeah. to believe that was just last year <laughs> you know that we didn't know whether we could get back from a place yeah you know but the tickets were going to cost twenty thousand. i was going to have to quarantine for four weeks Uh, yeah so i wasn't able to do that reunion tour yeah but but hopefully there will be other ones
0: yeah Uh, hopefully so and hopefully we can start to travel again
1: yeah no that was just ridiculous and you just didn't know whether you'd be able to get back and i had some You know, I was musical director for two Perth Festival shows. You mentioned before that that you you might like to talk about, like, some of the business side of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, It would be nice to sort of see how how that all works out for you. And, um, yeah, only go into as much as you feel like.
1: I mean, it's interesting how, you know, you observe how great Ray was at the business. And, uh, you know, I wasn't nearly as good but but i'm a hard worker you know so when i moved to perth which was a a love move you know both of the place and and of my young family um i really had i just had no connection i had the phone number of a guy named jim fisher who who played uh bluegrass and country rock and pubs a great band jim jim's a great bluegrass musician songwriter And Ian Simpson was in the band. He's like an amazing banjo player, you know? So I was thrown into the pub rock scene here. And then when I moved here permanently, oh, I just sort of did everything. You know, I did, I played with lots of jazz bands, country groups. Uh, I taught a lot. There was, seemed to be a lot of teaching going on then. I wrote music for film and television. Uh, um, I met Paul Kelly and Joe Camilleri, and I toured and recorded with them. So I kind of built a career as, you know, uh, a steel player, uh, doing doing various things, and wasn't wasn't really uh, doing my own thing so much. Although I made an album called Lucky Steals the Wheel on a trip back to the Texas in the early '80s. Uh, Joined a band called Dude Ranch, a great country band we made an album you know at the time uh yeah, Perth was rocking for live music you could really i always had as until like a couple of years ago I always had a sunday residency i i always yeah, right. had i usually had two residencies you know uh so so you got you got a good you know padding to your income. There, yes. you knew you were going to always have those gigs. So, so, Especially
0: having a family as well, a bit of that extra, a few extra mouths to feed. So you sort of get a bit
1: more pressure
0: to, yeah, to yeah. make
1: a bit of a living the out of responsibility. it. responsibility. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, and then I did a Music viva in Schools program, which is you put together groups and you play in primary schools and, and that's uh, that's a great program that, you know, earned you money during the day. And then I got the job at the ABC presenting the Daily Planet, and that lasted for 21 years. So that's, yeah. you know, that sort of took care of all that, and I was able to, to play music, you know, still play music on the side. Yeah, it's been a sort of <laughs> mixture of, you know, conscious direction and taking you know, what was, what was out there, you know, probably as a lot of musicians do uh, probably not as much conscious direction as it could have been. Sure. But, you know, not, not being primarily a singer, I'm a bit limited. Like I wish I had started singing earlier because that way you can go, you know, you, You go to a show. Like in Australia, instrumental music isn't as much a thing as it is in the States. You really got to be singing a song. It's
0: all about the story here, isn't it? There's always got to be some sort of narrative in that respect.
1: So, you know, so I started writing, you know, in those dude ranch days in the 90s and, you know, and I've been writing. I put a band together called Cats, which was like, I started playing button accordion and i just figured that western swing was probably going to be too niche you know that swing music kind of sat in this swing dancers kind of thing and i didn't want to be uh sort of subject to the whims of dance groups yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so i thought oh wow cajun music zydeco It's like rock beat and R&B beat. So that will appeal. And so Zodiacats, you know, continues to this day. And uh, we've been through several lineups, some some of them very strong. That's fun. I I started singing more and playing button accordion, writing songs, you know, to the point where that's become, uh, you know, a primary expression.
0: It'd be a great... Skill level and um, outlet as well to learn a different instrument and to be, you know, because playing one instrument, like devoting your life to one instrument would be a challenge, I imagine, finding new ways to improve and to it, practice. Yeah,
1: and- it is. And I've kind of reverted back to a lot of steel practice lately. Uh, but it's always good, you know, to just expand and use yeah. use your musical knowledge Uh to, to learn another instrument, the second one definitely isn't as hard, and and the pedal steel is a very hard instrument. So it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite unforgiving. But uh, you know, I recognize that's what I do best. You know, yeah. I think when I started playing accordion, a lot of people were like, "What you doing playing accordion?" You know, but you know, it's just like, "Hey, I want to try something." Yeah, but even different.
0: those even those push button accordions are still um like when you push in is one. Box
1: of reads and then you pull out. and it's a different yeah, challenge yeah, right? yeah yeah. So it's two yeah. notes. So that's, they're very they're diabolical as well, you know. Yeah, uh, but uh yeah. So when when my job finished at the ABC, uh, you know the pub scene was kind of dying in Perth, so you didn't have those two three gig regular gigs a week, and we we started a transition to ticketed shows. You know, it was always free here. Sure. Um, so, uh, I collaborated, uh, helping getting a great club, uh, in East Fremantle called the Duke of George going. And so I do, I do a lot of shows there and I do shows at the Ellington, which is a a similar thing, a great jazz club in Perth city. And just started playing with all different people, you know, great singer, Jesse Gordon. This, this gypsy jazz group, Sassafras, uh, Ben Vanderwal and Tom O'Halloran, who are like top-level jazz players, and I kind of just get in and make noises with them. We have a group <laughs> called My, Na- My Name is Nobody. And then, of course, you know, the, the work with the Aboriginal community of Roburn, you know, being musical director, that's uh, kind of, you know tremendously uh a learning experience you know yeah. just just incredible to do that so you know through the years because i play country music and it's popular with aboriginal people i've i've done you know a, a lot a lot of work in the aboriginal sphere i was in a play with with my aboriginal friend dave milroy that he wrote for perth festival uh that was uh february of this year. So uh, yeah, just try to keep keep the projects um, interesting. So uh, I'm a, I'm to the point where I definitely have an album of my own songs that that I need to record, plus an album of you know these pedal steel ideas. I have made a, a an album mostly of pedal steel instrumentals called Secret Steel. Yeah in the uh, around 2006 with Dave Brewer on guitar and I'm still work. I still work those those songs that's what I did at the Ellington on Saturday was was a lot of those songs so yeah just you know I'm playing with you when you when you came to town (laughs) playing playing with different people you know you know being inspired by by different uh musical situations and I know we're all all, all of us people who make money from live music, we're all kind of, and recorded music, we're all scratching our heads right now going, what's, where to go?
0: Absolutely. Um, we've got a couple of questions Lucky I'd like to, to ask about before we wind up for today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your work with the Acoustic Life of Sheds show you've, you've brought down here to Tassie? I think that's quite a, yeah, that, a wild and wacky idea and and i would like like to share with the listeners a bit bit of information about that if you don't mind
1: yeah well that that's a great idea so i, I was talking about uh, going up to roburn i first went to roburn uh to write songs with prisoners in the jail there and to record songs that have been written there and, and in the community and that was being funded and pioneered by a group called Big Heart, who are an arts for social change group, headquartered in Northwest Tasmania. So their, you know, their office is in Windyard. And their, their CEO, Scott Rankin, lives in Sisters Beach. Uh, and one of their uh, longtime staff, Andrew Viney, who's from Bernie, he came up with this idea, acoustic life of sheds, that would happen in the Northwest of Tasmania, around Wynyard, where where, uh, you invited five different musician composers to write a 20 minute piece, uh, to perform it in a farm shed. And these are free shows, so you'd have a Saturday morning show where you'd go They had a big potato shed for one of them. You'd go there and it would be all blacked out. And they had Maggie Abrahams playing vibraphone and other things happening, you know, kind of multidisciplinary. And then you drive another 10 minutes and to another place where um, Brian Ritchie and, um, and Ian Ng were, were doing a percussion and shakuhachi duet in, a, in like a tower a silo on another property and finally you'd end up at the Table Cape Tulip Farm where where I did a, a suite of songs so uh uh i they just it was a blank slate that was the great thing about it so it it was designed to get people onto these farms to realize that hey there's a farming community here you know part of the original philosophy was like, let's support small farms before, or right. to prevent agribusiness from buying them out. Sure, And there is a great community of farmers, uh, you know, all over Tasmania. And, and a brilliant idea, because I was playing in an old shearing shed, which the Roberts Thompson family, you know, cleaned out and, you know, set up as a venue, which they, they later used as different things. And I got to new Know this wonderful family, and it was basically carte blanche. So I would just come to Tasmania, and first first year there by biannual, starting in two thousand and fifteen. First year I did an instrumental suite with Conrad Park, who lives in Hobart, with Conrad on drums and stick. Uh, the next year I did a suite of songs with Claire Ann Taylor uh, and Nick Haywood on bass, uh, Conrad on drums and Paul Williamson on sax, uh, where each song was in the voice of a 19th century Tasmanian from the area. So, so I went online to find the old newspapers on Trove and found these incredible characters, you know, uh, uh some guy who became an MP, uh, william moore was his name you know so his story and there was a fictitious uh, pioneering Bushwoman woman that, that claire ann sang about there was a bush ranger there was uh you know a song combining some of the many you know amazing characters from the north what was his name fw alexander he did the alexander method uh and there was uh An aboriginal warrior who was actually hung in melbourne so uh yes so that was 2017 2019 i i expanded it and did did something with heath cullen co-wrote songs with him Uh, and we we did a song about an artificial intelligence who lived in the shed (laughs) Uh, so uh, so, yeah, just great program. It didn't happen in TAS because of COVID in 21, but it's so popular that uh, Sydney Festival did it as Secret Life of Boat Sheds, and they're now talking, uh, I think, with Amsterdam about, wow. about doing it. So Big Art has this kind of genius of uh, putting music in new contexts. You know, and the great thing about playing in a shed is that it's a neutral space. So it's, you know, a farmer opens it up and it becomes a community space. And people don't feel threatened by going there. They actually feel some ownership. So you could play the wackiest stuff and, and people would go, yeah, that's our wacky stuff. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, the silo thing of, oh, you know, our pinhead, you know, improvised music goes in the concert hall here. Yeah. You know, but by mixing the venues up, I, I think there's a, a lot to be gained from that.
0: Absolutely. Um, and that's a great initiative um, to both to Big Heart and, and to yourself for taking that on too. It's that's, that's another great way to diversify and to, you know, be inspired by your surroundings and, and learn more about your instrument and, yeah, listen to others and, Yeah. I oh, have you know, to get along to and the show. I, I, I haven't. I don't know how I've missed them, but I have. So whenever yeah, it comes no, back, yeah, they to were Tassie, tremendous. I will and, have to, and
1: you know, I write. You know, I write well to a deadline. Sure. You know, I was like, I we go to this beautiful place in, uh, not Sisters Beach, but the boat harbor. Boat harbor. Yeah. And you're there for a week, and you're like looking out over the ocean. And i'm going this is my job to write songs (laughs) and i'm like it's just awesome i I often think i should be writing you know librettos for operas because one thing one thing that spurs me on is is a deadline and and an an assignment if i'm just sitting at home i'm liable just to you know make weird sounds on pedal steel guitar (laughs) but you know i did the same thing for i was musical director for the opening of Perth Festival earlier this year, a show that never happened because of COVID. But I wrote a couple of songs for that because it's just like, yeah, we need a song in here to, to do this. It's kind of like the old, you know, Brill Building in, in Broadway.
0: I reckon we might wrap it up, mate. How about is there any key recordings where people can, can listen to what you've – I know you've released a couple of your own records and the last one – you put out was a I wouldn't say a tribute to Hank Williams but it was a bunch of Hank Williams songs with a lot of Australian artists is that yeah that, that's, that's a, good a real point good, to go to
1: yeah that's a real good place to go it's called Purple Sky and um, the way that started was you know I said oh I'm thinking of doing an album of, of uh, Hank Williams songs to Paul Kelly They said yeah whenever you do that I'm in and it was actually Paul who said, hey, when are you doing that Hank album? <laughs> so I sort of picked up picked up the baton again after years of talking about it. Sure. And, you know, we, we did the first recording, just Paul and I, acoustic guitar and steel. And I kind of pieced it together. I did some recordings at Casey Chambers. But some of the most interesting recordings were uh, at Matt Walker's studio. He used to have a studio. Up in the hills shack. of Melbourne, yeah. And Matt's uh, – actually, you should interview Matt. I'd love really to get ready. on he's the map. Yeah, he's a very interesting guitar player. He's just put out an instrumental album, I think, with Ben Friends.
0: Oh, great. Actually, you're yeah. right. He
1: has. So, yeah, I've known Matt, you know, since he was a young man coming out to play the Bridgetown Blues Festival. We hung out together then. And his approach, like like to these Hank Williams songs, it was really great. It was like, uh, why should we just recreate them? Why don't we do something new so So the ones we did in his studio, we ended up rewriting the chords, changing the oh, wow. feel, sure you know, and if you listen to them they, they are every song is kind of significantly changed and and I just was so inspired by that, you know, by that, uh, that approach to it because, you know, maybe, you know, I've got the chops where I could do an album that sounded just like Hank Williams, but why would you? That's been done before. Yeah, and it's you know, been it's done the really same, well. Yeah, it's the same approach, you know, in my TEDx talk about improvisation. Uh, a great fiddle player named Johnny Gimble said, why do you want to repeat the same solo again? So it's sort of about that, that being in the flow. That's when we're happiest in music is when we're, when we're being in the flow. And when you record something or compose something, it's like that flow of improvisation, but it's just slowed down a little bit, Sure. you know? and and, and relaxed you know one of the things you know i i sort of say that i was 21 years at the daily planet as a kind of footnote but it was really uh much more significant to me than that because i was in charge of deciding what what music we were going to play on the air so i had developed my my aesthetic skills you know about evaluating this music so you know i would often hear that you'd hear something that was like uh a re- basically a recreation of an earlier style or sound yeah. and to be playable it would have to be just so incredibly good you know to, to but if something was like kind of had a new edge to it it would be like wow that's that's really interesting and also during that time i learned to evaluate songs you know because you're playing songs and i went like is there really a reason to play this kind of half written song that just sounds like every other half written song yeah. you know so i became much more much more demanding and and that helped helped my own songwriting absolutely so, you know, that besides, would
0: off subconsciously for sure yeah
1: yeah so besides you know sort of being a great show that you know that that was part of the australian musical co- community it was it was a great learning experience for me
0: yeah it sure had a massive effect on the australian music community i I recall getting tapes you know someone that had taped uh, taped you know multiple <laughs> times, and they've gone, oh, check out this version I oh, did this this show that Lucky put together and it features i don't know some some stuff from Rykuda that hasn't been heard for, I don't know, like there's, yeah, there's definitely a lot of players and and people my age and probably older who can relate to hearing stuff on your show for the first time and then devoting their life to music perhaps, you know, I'm I'm sure that. Yeah, I've heard these stories.
1: Uh, James, the great bassist who plays with Casey Chambers, he was like going to ag school and then I played him something, maybe it was Jaco Pastorius's Portrait of Tracy.
0: Yeah. And he was
1: like, no, I'm going to be a musician. Yeah. <laughs> you know, or this gypsy jazz guitarist, Lachlan, I played with the other night. So it, it's really, you know, a beautiful thing that, you know, such a great show was part of our musical community. And and the Australian musical community is really you know, a great one in a sort of quiet achiever kind of way because Australia doesn't, it's not like America, which has, you know, like just an abundance of musical styles that were created there, you know, (laughs) blues, jazz, country music, hip hop, you know, like everything, everything comes from that. You know, where Australia is, well, you know, we got pub rock, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, but we still have people who are doing, you know, really interesting, heartfelt things with music and aren't so locked in to those styles as cliches.
0: Yeah, I guess because it is so secondhand, like we've heard it two or three, you know, like Chinese whispers later, you know, we've heard it down the line and it's probably got misinterpreted every time it's been passed on. So. Yeah, well, you
1: just, well, but you're not locked in, like Americans are a little bit less yeah. flexible, you know, like yep. like they're not very accepting of, you know, an African-American who sings rock music, you know, it's like this goes in that category, that goes in. So Australians are... Are very clever at at mixing things up, and you know because you, we have to because you have to do a lot of different gigs, you know, to make a living here. It's kind of like that New Orleans thing where the musicians were so good because you know they played session R and B sessions. They might play in a brass band. They might play in a marching band. Yep. They'd play trad jazz. They play modern jazz. Yep. You know, small town, smallish town, uh, but, but you need to make a living. So that, that's kind of, you know, the beauty uh, of the Australian experience.
0: Excellent. I, I think it's a great spot to leave it, Lucky. Thank you very much for your time today, having a chat and giving us a little insight into the world of steel. Well, great to talk. Right on. All the best, buddy. Thank you very much.
1: Okay. Thanks, mate.
0: Thanks for listening, folks, to another episode of Say It With Guitars. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it around to your mates, leave a good review, and hopefully we'll see you next time.